With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who, What, Where. And this is Second Life a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today, I'm speaking with New York Times bestselling author, Ayana Gray. Ayana's debut fantasy novel, Beasts of Prey, captured the attention of young adult readers and people like me around the world when it was published last year. Since then, it's been translated into over 10 languages and is even being adapted for a feature film with Netflix. The story follows two Black teenagers as they venture into a magical jungle to hunt down a vicious monster. It's the first in her trilogy, and her second book, Beasts of Ruin, is out this week. But before becoming a professional author, Ayana worked in higher education, specifically in fundraising for the University of Florida and the University of Arkansas. What does that mean exactly? Well, part of her job was researching donors who could help fund scholarships and endowments and all of the amazing things that you get to participate in on campus. And she did all of this while piecing together ideas for her novel on the side. In this episode, Ayana shares how her first life as a researcher helped her build the magical world of her series and how she learned to let go, trust her collaborators, and make the leap into her second life. Plus, Ayana tells us the incredible story of how she was approached by 43 agents for her very first book. Now, on Second Life, it's Ayana Gray. You ready to get started? I'm ready. Okay, so Ayana, on this podcast, we like to start at the beginning. So what did you study in school? And much more importantly, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? So I studied African and African American studies and political science as a dual degree. Growing up, I think I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be an archaeologist. I wanted to be a zoologist. I wanted to be an architect, a fashion designer. I was one of those kids that sort of changed what I wanted to be based on whatever I was interested in at any given time. That makes sense. That makes sense. I love that. So it wasn't like, I'm going to be an author. That was not the sole goal, but one of many. It was one of many. And it, I think actually it was one of the jobs that I certainly was like, it'd be cool if I could write books for a living. But of all the jobs that I was interested in, the path to becoming an author seemed the most mysterious. Like I wasn't actually very sure of, well, what do you do to become an author? You don't go get a degree in it necessarily. So how do you do it? It just felt like this big, mysterious, lofty thing. I know that feeling well. In my case, I had a moment of thinking, I can't really go to my parents and say, mom, dad, I want to be a novelist because at 21, that would have just seemed a little over the top. 
But you ended up getting there. We are going to talk all about your debut novel, Beasts of Prey, which I love, which came out last year. You have a new book that's just about to come out. But that first one was a New York Times bestseller. It's on its way to being produced as a Netflix film. And it's just your first in a trilogy. I have so many questions in that arena. But because this is Second Life, let's start with your first life, which was your career in higher education. So I read that after college, you worked in the fundraising departments at the University of Arkansas and the University of Florida. I'm not going to lie. I don't fully know what that means or what that entails. So I'm hoping that maybe you can walk me through a little bit about what your jobs were like and sort of the scope of your work. Yeah. So senior year of high school, I did the very unambitious thing and applied to 19 colleges. (sighs) But I ended up getting into 18 of the 19, which was like great to be able to say, but it presented a really kind of serious problem for me when it came time to choose. And so I remember in April 2011, I got a phone call from a gentleman at the University of Arkansas. He was the head of the Office of Diversity and Multicultural Affairs at the time. And he said, hey, I noticed that you applied and you were accepted, but we haven't heard from you. Have you made your decision yet? And I said, no, I'm still deciding. And he said, well, if you come to the University of Arkansas, we will take care of you. You have my word. I'm telling you, I personally will make sure that you have a good experience here and that you feel like you have a support system here. And I remember being very um, impressed by that. And that was actually what made me decide to go to the University of Arkansas, which in a lot of ways, really set my trajectory in my first and second life now, because I went to the University of Arkansas and that gentleman, Dr. Charles Robinson, kept true to his word. He's now actually the chancellor of the University of Arkansas. He's the first black chancellor of the University of Arkansas. But when he was in his previous role, he did keep his word and look out for me. And he actually said, hey, you have a talent for writing. I can tell even in your emails that you know how to write. I want you to apply to this upcoming internship that the University of Arkansas is creating. And this was an internship to try to create more of a pipeline for students from underrepresented backgrounds to get into development, because just as you said, it wasn't an area that a lot of people just know about. So he actually pushed me and pushed my name forward for this internship with the University of Arkansas advancement team. So what a lot of people don't realize about higher education is that Tuition really only covers a few baseline items, but things like professorships, how to attract some of the best minds in certain industries to come to certain universities, scholarships for things like study abroad, creating new buildings, etc. These things are actually paid for by donations that come from all over the world. And I want to say the 90s, universities started to create these advancement offices or development offices, and this idea of basically fundraising for the university. And so, you know, you see different shops, the small schools have really small programs, and then you have like the big universities like I worked at, where they're raising millions and sometimes billions of dollars. So I was an intern, and that's how I got to learn about advancement and development. And the internship program I was a part of was really cool because I didn't just stay in one spot. I got to work with corporate and foundation relations because that's a different kind of gift giving when you go to, say, Walmart and ask them to make a donation as a corporation. I went to Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences department 
where they're raising money specifically for Fulbright College. I went to the Alumni Association because we can guess that a lot of fundraising comes from alumni who've had a good experience and want to give back. So I was a floating intern and I got to work with all of these different sections of the University of Arkansas. Because I did that for three years as an undergrad, when I graduated, I knew so many people in advancement that I said, hey, I've graduated and I'm looking for a job. My former supervisor, you know, once again, put my name out there and said, there's a position in the research department. I think you should apply and gave me a strong recommendation. And that's actually how I got my first job and how I got into development and advancement at a higher ed level. It's interesting because I do think that interning really can be illuminating in so many ways. I do feel like because I personally did so many internships before getting my first job after grad school, I knew kind of what I was signing up for. Like I knew what the pace of work would be. I knew a little bit about what the scope of work would be. But there was still this pretty steep learning curve for me. I'm wondering if when you transitioned from the internship to the full-time job, if you had a learning curve and if there were any aspects of the full-time job that were a harder lift, let's say, or some aspects that came really, really naturally where you're like, oh, I got this. Yeah. So I think that when I was an intern and when I was a student, there was a little bit of a natural barrier. I was there, but I wasn't really enmeshed in, say, the politics. And they're not unique politics, right? Like we see politics in almost every industry, in any team, the dynamics. And so once I actually started working at the University of Arkansas and I wasn't a student anymore, I learned kind of about, you know, here are the people who are at the top and here's who gets to call the shots. I had a sense of it, but I didn't have to necessarily pay as much attention to it as an intern because for me as an intern, it was like my supervisor was the only person I really had to worry about. The thing that came naturally was the writing, because at the University of Arkansas, and like I said, every shop is a little bit different, but there's a department for just about anything. And the department that I was put in, ironically, was one of the departments I had an interned in. It was the research department, and we were basically like what I told my now husband when we were dating. I said, I spy on rich people. (laughs) So what I would do, you know, I could use you as the example, Hillary, let's say that One of the development officers at the University of Arkansas says, Ayana, I've gotten a meeting with Hillary and I want to ask her to make a gift to the University of Arkansas. What can you tell me? What I then would do is research you. (laughs) And it's um, both interesting and disturbing, like how much information is actually out there about Uh people, legally, by the way. And so I'd research you and I would say, okay, well, Hillary, hypothetically, graduated from the University of Arkansas at this time. She was a member of this sorority. She was a marine biology major. So she loves marine biology. She gives to the Atlanta Georgia Aquarium every year. These are her interests. By the way, she's got two kids in private school. She posts about them on her Facebook all the time. So you might want to wait till they're a little bit older. Maybe she's not having to worry about where they're going to go to college. I'm pulling all of this information. She just got married or she just got promoted at work. So she just got, you know, a huge windfall of money. I'm pulling all of this information to create a profile. And I create that profile and I share it with the development officer. 
and they read it and they say, okay, based on everything Ayana has told me, some of it's qualitative, some of it's quantitative, I'm going to ask Hillary for this amount of money and I'm going to ask her for this amount of money to go toward this specific place because I know that Hillary is interested in marine biology. So what I should not ask her for is money to support the football team. You know, yep. that was what I was doing. <laughs> I know it's so creepy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's funny though, because you're saying this and I'm of course already mentally tying this to writing because I'm just thinking about like the character development, the level of detail that you're culling, like some of those amazing pieces of research that really are rounding out a human. And you're also looking for motivation and all of those other things. So it's such an interesting piece. And I don't know if you ever thought about how that muscle helped with your second life. But I personally am excited just thinking about some of those parallels in certain ways. Okay, so did you like it? Did you like doing this kind of research? Was it something that you enjoyed? Or was it something where you're like, Ugh, this feels like not my calling? Or was it just like breathing? So I did like it. I really liked my boss. She was really fair, really kind, really understanding. I think the thing is my work felt sometimes a bit boring. I remember my boss warned me in the interview. She's like, do you mind quiet spaces? Because we're very quiet. Everybody was in their cubicle doing their research. That was helpful though, because when I got my work done, like my actual reports and profiles done, I could sometimes sneak and do a little bit of my own writing. (laughs) I can safely say that now. So, I mean, I liked it, but it wasn't as exciting for me. That's why ultimately I didn't stay, but I did like it. Got it. Okay. What made you decide to then move from the University of Arkansas to the University of Florida? Because you decided to stay in the industry, but move, and this time to a school that you didn't have that same familiarity or background or comfort level with. I'm curious about what inspired that. Well, there was a slight detour between those two um, stops. I was bored. And I think one of the constants (laughs) in my life is like this very classic follow your heart, follow your mind, uh, what your head's telling you to do versus what your heart's telling you to do. And so I was fresh out of college, had worked a full year doing, you know, the very responsible thing, very steady job. And I was bored. So I did the super responsible thing, sold all my stuff, and I went to go live in Australia for a year as an au pair. And it was very different from it, what I'd done. But I was glad I did that. You know, like it was my gap year in the wrong order. And I got to see the world. And it was a really empowering year because I went to a continent where I knew virtually no one, where my parents were 20 hours away. If I needed to get to them, it was a 20-hour flight. Australia is adjacent to America culturally, so it wasn't a total culture shock, but I was very much on my own and had to figure out a lot by myself and also take care of small human beings who are not mine. (laughs) And so I did that for a year and I got to write for a year and live this sort of carefree life, which was really fun. But at the end of it, I came back to America and I was like, okay, I've had my fun. Now what am I going to do? Because I still want to be able to pay my bills and not have to stay at my mom and dad's house. What do I know? I know higher education. I know prospect research. And that's how I found the University of Florida. UF is a much bigger shop than the University of Arkansas. To give you an idea, when I was at the University of Arkansas, they were working on a capital campaign to raise $1.5 billion over the course of many years. When I came to the University of Florida, they were raising $3 billion. And there were even talks of trying to hit $5 billion at one point. So it was a much bigger shop. 
And so for me, it felt like a step up in my career. Again, at this time, I was writing for fun, but I had this thing in the back of my head where I was like, I need to do something that's going to allow me to pay the bills and be independent as a woman. And so that's why I went to the University of Florida. When you say you were writing, what did that mean? Was it a blog? Were you writing articles? Were you writing short stories? What were you working on? I was writing Beasts of Prey. (gasps) You're kidding! I started writing Beasts of Prey when I graduated from college in 2015. It was just for fun. It was just like this thing that I was doing that I didn't tell a whole lot of people about, but I was doing that while I was working. When I would finish my work at the University of Arkansas and sneak to write a little bit of extra stuff on the side during my free time, that was all Beasts of Prey. That is so incredible. I have a million questions about that, but I want to finish with University of Florida. So I'm curious about the skills that you were honing during this point in time, because I do think that some of the early work that we do in our careers, that we're gathering all of these skills that are actually quite valuable, even if we don't see it in the moment. And they're skills that are actually quite transferable, like things that you will go back to or lean on or have muscle memory for or whatever it is down the road, even in a different profession or a different type of career. I'm wondering if you had any of those. Yeah. So I think I could look at it two different ways. One, I love the University of Arkansas. It's my alma mater. But what I really appreciated about when I went to the University of Florida is that my job went from being completely behind the scenes to only about 50% behind the scenes. You know, I mentioned that at the University of Arkansas, it was very quiet. We stayed in our cubicles and literally we were in a separate building away from everybody else. So people didn't even know who we were. At the University (laughs) of Florida, my job was a little bit different. I was a prospect strategy analyst. So Half of my work was still doing that research and that spying on rich people business, but the leadership there had done something interesting where they took two different positions and put them into one and made that, you know, the PSA job where I was doing the research, but I was also literally helping development officers form strategies about who they should be asking for money saying, okay, you've talked to Hillary two times in the last three years. Where are we with that? Like, are you going to continue to talk to her or are you not? Because if you're not, I have a list of prospects that you should be talking to who you haven't yet reached out to. And really kind of putting gentle pressure on development officers to say, let's get some movement here. Because they're some of the most optimistic people (laughs) I've ever gotten to work with because they're always like, oh, I need one more meeting and I can close that deal. And they're relationship builders, which is wonderful. But what that means is sometimes you'd have development officers who would be trying to manage like 400 people, which is not sustainable. You can't visit 400 people in a year. So I would come in with my research and my strategy kind of analysis and say, of these 400 people, who are you really going to be able to see? And these are the people I think you should maybe let go for a little while and let somebody else take a crack at them. What that did is that pushed me out of my comfort zone. It made me you know, have to sort of defend my points and be out in front of more people. And I appreciated that. And I think when I went to become an author, when you're an author, traditionally published or self-published otherwise, you are your own advocate. So I think if I had gone from being just a researcher who had never really had to speak publicly before, who had never had to really fight for anything or advocate for myself, it would have been a much harder transition to do that than the one going from the University of Florida to doing that because I was already scheduling and hosting my own meetings now. So I think in that regard, it transferred really, really well. 
That makes a lot of sense. I can see that. Okay. I'm wondering, not to be assumptive at all, but did you ever feel any sense of imposter syndrome in the sense of here you are relatively new in your career and you're telling folks who have been raising money for the university for however many years what their strategy should be? Yeah. Each of us, the people on my team, we were assigned to work with a specific college or school within the University of Florida. So I worked primarily with Warrington College of Business, which in my very biased opinion is one of the strongest teams at the University of Florida. I certainly watched some of my colleagues have a lot of friction with development officers as they tried to inform strategy. What I tried to do, instead of saying, I'm new and I know everything, I really tried to have a lot of sit-down meetings with each of the development officers I worked with. And I asked just very plainly, what are your goals? What are you after? Like, what is it that you want? What's important to you? Because people have different goals. Some people want to have lots of visits and touch lots of you know prospects. But really trying to get to know people on a base level, it's sort of what you said earlier, it's character development. And then earning their trust by consistently, gently giving them advice. And when it pans out, I'm not saying, oh, I told you so, but see, you know, <laughs> I, I do know what I'm talking about. And having a lot of data to back up what I'm saying. As an author, I've learned that every good story has certain bones. And it's funny because any story that you think of has these bones. You have a character who has goals, motive, stakes. So basically, what do they want? Why do they want it? What happens if they don't get it? And what's standing in their way? A conflict. That's in any story. And it's interesting because that's the exact same thing that you have with donors that you're trying to figure out. Oftentimes, these are people who do want to support. It's figuring out why, what might be standing in their way, and then communicating that to development officers. So, hey, I've done the research and I know that Hillary really wants to give, but maybe she's unsure. Maybe she had not a great experience with the University of Florida and she wants to talk to someone about that before she gives X amount of money to you all. It's creating a story that the development officer can then take, understand, and then inform what they're doing. So in a way, you're using the same mindset that you would use as an author in that space. So it was, again, very natural transition to go from one to the other. Uh, the psychology of it all is so interesting. So you had mentioned that you started working on Birds of Prey early on, 2015, that it was the project that you were working on when you had some free time. I'm wondering at what point did you start to think, this is the thing I want to do? And if we can talk through some of your process. It's so funny because like, as much as I think there are a lot of natural crossovers between what I used to do professionally and what I do now, for a very long time, I kept them so separate. And actually, I think that's part of why I was able to write Beasts of Prey in the end, because for the first few years, I was rewriting, rewriting, revising. When I went to the University of Florida and moved to Florida, I didn't have anyone. Nobody tells you how hard it is to make friends in your 20s. So I was very much by myself. What ended up happening is I created a pretty regimented routine where I got up, I took the bus to go to work, which wasn't a long ride. I worked eight to five. One thing I will say that I really appreciated about UF is it was, a, it was the kind of job where I could leave my work at my desk. I was not expected to take things home. So at five o'clock, I was done, took the bus ride home. And pretty much as soon as I got home, I might have a quick dinner, but I was writing all night <laughs> and then get a few hours of sleep and get up. 
it was a second job for a while, but I knew that I only had that like limited amount of time to work. So I, I actually, in some ways, most of the time not, but sometimes I almost miss when I had that very regimented schedule to kind of keep me, like it literally got to the point where I felt weird if I didn't come home and write because it was just such a part of my routine. I write, I, I really like world building. So I start with a big, big world. And then I ask myself what kinds of stories fit into this world. And then I ask myself what characters fit into this kind of story. And then I go back and I do, okay, what does this character want? Why do they want it? What's standing in their way? And then what happens if they don't get it? And after I kind of figure out those pieces, then I start writing and I'm a huge reviser. So ugly draft. And then I revise and make a slightly prettier draft, slightly, slightly prettier until I get to where I feel good about the work or at least not terrible. There's always like a little, like I could have worded that a little bit differently and I've had to let that go. Okay. So for anyone who hasn't read Beast, it's fantasy. It's YA fantasy. And it's such a richly drawn world. And I always think about the fact that like some of the books that I have loved best in my life have that level of detail and magic. And I have such a level of respect for the people who can write that because you are making up a universe that has its own rules and its own things. How much of that do you determine before you start into a you know, outline or into chapters or into arcs? I guess I'm asking, how much is set up before and how much reveals itself to you through the process? Ooh, okay. So I love world building. I think, so you tend to write what you love to read and I love fantasy. I always have, even as a kid reading the Chronicles of Narnia, I loved these big immersive atmospheric worlds. And so for me, that's the fun part. What I actually like to do to keep myself organized nowadays, and while I was writing Beasts of Praise, I, I actually make a fake Wikipedia page. <laughs> not not at all like on wikipedia.org, but like I will make a document that looks like a Wikipedia page where I write all about my world. And there are things that I write about that don't make it into the books, but I write them for myself. What kinds of clothes do women wear when they get married? What foods do people eat? What is the school system like? What are the religions like? And how do different people from different ethnicities celebrate? And you know, what are the holidays? Who are the famous people from this part of the world? I do all of those things before I start writing because for me, that's how the worlds feel real when I think about all of those details. They may never get into the story, but for me, that's part of getting immersed in it. Did you know it was going to be a trilogy? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> okay, so it's always complicated for me because I think the internet is a fantastic place and I think it's a terrible place. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic in that I mentioned earlier that I, I had no idea about what the path was to becoming a traditionally published author. But the internet allowed me to research and figure out, oh, you need a literary agent if you want to be traditionally published and this is what they will do, et cetera. That's the good part. The bad part is there's a lot of bad advice on the internet and it's very hard <laughs> to know what's true and what's credible until you're really in the industry. And one of the bad pieces of advice that I took to heart was this advice that someone said, oh, if you're an unheard of new writer, don't try to write a trilogy or a series. Nobody's heard of you. Nobody's going to want to buy multiple books from an unknown name. Try to write a standalone. So I actually tried to make Beasts of Prey, which is now a trilogy, into a standalone. <laughs> 
novel. And when I queried it, that's how I presented it. I said it had serious potential, but I was like, I'm going to put this whole story into one. And it was my now literary agent who was very kind and emailed me back and said, Ayana, really good story, but I think it's a little ambitious, which was his very tactful way of saying, you know, there's too much going on here. And when we spoke, he actually said, you know, I think this is more than one story. And I think you've got so much here and you can save some of these things. And it goes to show the power of someone having small confidences in you. Because it was like, as soon as he said that, this light kind of turned on in my head. I think especially as a woman and especially as a Black woman, we're taught not to occupy too much space. We're taught just to be grateful for the opportunity to be in the room. We're not told to take up the room or demand attention. And that's how I had approached my author career. Like him saying that was just kind of this turning point where I was like, oh, I am allowed to take up space. It is possible for me to write more than one book and not feel like I'm doing too much here. So it was not meant to be a trilogy, but it became a trilogy. Because you were so ambitious with the first book that there was enough in it for three. I like that. Yes. So how do you go from this is something that I'm working on in the background at all times? Mm hmm a second job to, okay, I'm going to try and find a literary agent. I think I'm ready to go. You know, I've written it. I have a, I'm guessing, complete first draft at that point. Mm -hmm. What was that timeline like? And what was that process like for you? I went to Florida. Again, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have the same friend group that I'd had in college. And what that did was I ended up really looking for community on the internet. And what I found was Twitter at that time had a really great writer's community, people who were all in the same boat, trying to find agents, trying to find publishers, et cetera. And one day on Twitter, I saw people pitching their book ideas. And I was like, what is this? What's going on? And I learned about this event on Twitter called DV Pit. It had been created by an agent named Beth Phelan. And it was this event specifically for people from marginalized backgrounds to pitch their book ideas on a specific day using a specific hashtag. And literary agents would go on Twitter at that specific time. And if they liked your pitch, they could like your tweet. And that was them signaling for you to then send them your work. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool. But I don't have a book to, <laughs> to pitch. So I contacted Beth the creator. And I said, when is the next one? And she said, it's going to be in April, 2019. And it was the first time in my life that I actually had a deadline. So I've been working on this book kind of like, oh yeah, I'll get to, I'll finish it when I finish it. But now I had a deadline. And so I started working on Beasts of Prey every day. That's where that routine came in. And by April, 2019, I had a book to pitch. So I pitched it. And I was, again, because of this mindset I mentioned earlier, I was like, well, if two or three agents like it and want me to send it to them, I'll be happy. So I pitched it. Then I very quickly logged out of Twitter and did not look. And I turned on Beyonce's Coachella performance to make me feel better. <laughs> Truly, like watching Beyonce's performances gives me power. <laughs> very understandable. Do you remember what your tweet said? Yeah, I pitched my book as Black Arya Stark meets King of Scars, which is a great YA fantasy novel. And I don't remember the wording, but... It was a really short pitch where a girl who is trying to win her freedom must enter a magical jungle and must trust enemies along the way. You know, something to that effect. Arya Stark was a really big character at that particular moment because Game of Thrones was happening. The final season was happening. So she was like super trendy in that moment. I didn't know that when I made the pitch, but, you know, I got lucky. 
again, I, I was like, if three agents like this, I'll be happy. So I logged out. And then a friend of mine texted me and she was like, have you been on Twitter? And I said, no. And she said, you might want to log back on. And I think I ended up with about 43 agents <gasps> who asked for Beasts to Prey, which was kind of wild. Oh my God. That must have been such an outrageously joyous feeling. Yeah, I actually got sick. I actually felt physically sick. I, I was not drinking water. I was like full out panicking. And a friend of mine was like, go drink some water, take a deep breath. <laughs> because I truly had not expected it. I was like five. If I have a really great day, maybe 10. Certainly was not expecting 43. <laughs> that number will always stick out because I remember I wrote all of their names down on a sheet of paper. And then I had to research all 43 agents. And then I sent my stuff to not all 43, but a handful of agents who I thought might be a good fit. And my agent who I ended up picking, he was very sweet. I sent him my materials and he answered almost immediately like, yep, send me the whole thing. I want to read it right now. And that's how I got my literary agent. There are all sorts of paths to publication. Mine was a little bit unusual, but that's how I actually got my literary agent. We edited together for a, actually a year. The pandemic happened. I was like, cool, we're in a recession. Like the economy's tanking. Arts are the first thing to go whenever we have any kind of economic crises or problems. So no one's going to be wanting to buy a fantasy novel. My literary agent was like, I believe in you. I believe in these books. And I think we should go out and we should try to sell them. And we did. And I surprised myself again. And Beasts of Prey was acquired by Penguin Random House, which is so strange to think about because when I think about publishers, like I think of Penguin Random House, like I, I'm a book person. So as a kid, like that was everything. That was it. Okay. So you worked on that for a year. At what point did you quit your day job and how did you know it was time? Oh gosh. So 2020 is when I finished it and when we sold it in July of 2020. If you take yourself back to July of 2020, it was not a fantastic time in America, really anywhere in the world, but specifically in America, because there was a tremendous amount of civil unrest in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And as a Black woman, there were a lot of really complicated feelings then because we were in a pandemic and I wanted to do something, but I also did not know what was safe for me to do from a health perspective because I lived alone and didn't have anyone to look after me if I were to get sick. And when we moved virtual, I went from being able to do a lot of work with the College of Business, which I really enjoyed, to being kind of pulled centrally and not getting to do as much of that autonomous work. So the nature of my job at University of Florida changed. When I sold my book, there was this impulse like, okay, I should quit. But because I'm the oldest and really responsible and really cautious, it was hard to do because it was moving from a salaried job with benefits and a sure thing to this new space where I was a creative and very much having to manage it all by myself. And that was intimidating, especially while we were still in a pandemic. So actually, even though I sold Beasts of Prey in July of 2020, I didn't actually leave the University of Florida until April of 2021. At that point, I had spoken with accountants and financial advisors and tried to do my best to really figure out how am I going to make this a sustainable job that works similarly to my job at UF, you know, and made sure all of my ducks were in a row before I quit. And my parents did not understand it. They were like, just leave. <laughs> my spouse was like, just leave. But it was actually a really scary leap to make. That makes sense. You're betting on yourself in a totally different way. Yeah. 
So what was it like during all of those rewrites? Because you said you worked on it for a year. Mm -hmm. I can imagine there were lots of iterations, especially if you're going from one book to realizing you actually have enough material for three. What was that process like for you? I'm someone who really enjoys that process. I know there are authors who really lament the revision process and don't like having to tweak words. But for me, I'm very unprecious about my work. If I think of a better way to approach something, if I think of a stronger opening, I'm very happy to just like rip that up, throw it out and write something that I think is better and better. So even though, you know, I was frustrated with myself at times, like, oh, I wish I could write faster. I wish I could turn this in and keep up with the pace of some of the other authors who I know. It was actually really cool to like watch and look at my drafts from say 2019 when I was pitching at that in the Twitter event to look at that and then to go into 2021 when I am publishing and look at how much it's changed even in two years and see the growth. My literary agent, in addition to being a great agent, is also really editorial and he told me books to read about craft. So I was learning and developing as a professional writer, which just felt really, really cool. And it made it feel less like a hobby and more like, oh, this is something I can actually do. So yeah, I think I what I typically do is much the way I draft. I start macro and the big problems and the big things I know I want to fix. And then I whittle down until I'm just kind of nitpicking at words. That makes sense. So your book was incredibly well received. What was that like for you? And how did the Netflix adaptation come about? Because that feels like overwhelmingly cool. It's surreal. Again, I think as a Black woman, you are conditioned to keep your expectations low. And you almost don't want to dare to dream and then be crushed when these dreams don't come to fruition. And so for a long time, I didn't even let myself dare to think that my book could ever hit a list like the New York Times bestseller list. I was like, if it gets published, I'm happy. And slowly, 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 you know, you can't help it when you're a dreamer. Like even when you try not to, these dreams come in anyway. And so when that actually happened, I felt sort of detached, like this is happening to someone else. That's when I think the imposter syndrome really hit. I think when I met people, strangers who I did not know who were not paid actors, (laughs) who were like, no, I read your book and liked it. That was another moment where I was like, is that really happening? Is this really happening right now? There's always this kind of moment where you're waiting to wake up from a dream and you realize that you're back at your cubicle and none of this has actually happened. I don't know if that ever goes away. As Netflix goes, I really believe that so much quote unquote luck happens from putting good people in your corner. And my literary agent, who I will sing high praises of until the cows come home, is one of those just really good people. And when we took Beasts of Prey out to publishers in July 2020, his background is in film. And he said, you know, I have some colleagues out West who I think would be interested and I'm going to share it with them. And I said, okay, that's fine. Not going to, not going to fight that one. And We found some really, really wonderful advocates out in Hollywood who were very excited about it. That's totally out of my bailiwick and my knowledge, but it kind of happened out of nowhere, to be honest with you. It was like, oh, we have people reading, and then suddenly Netflix is interested, and I was just sort of spinning. Because remember, this is all happening while I'm locked in my apartment and not allowed to leave, you know? So one of the things that you've been pretty candid about on social media is being a small business owner, which is an interesting or perhaps tongue in cheek way of referring to yourself. But really, I thought clever because you are a business woman. 
So you have to help with the marketing. You have to think about connecting with your readership. You have to tour to promote it. You have to create content. I feel like that's how it always is with work. It's like you go to the next level and then it's more of the stuff that you loved. Great. And then it's new stuff, some of which is great and some of which you're like, oh, okay, now I have to do this too. So how do you deal with that tension? And specifically, do you have any advice for folks who maybe aren't natural self-marketers, but find themselves in a position where they have to? Because I do think in this day and age, we all have to be advocates for ourselves and our work in whatever that means. Yeah. I think, you know, when people ask me, what's the number one thing, you know, that you've learned or that you didn't know before and after you became an author, it was realizing, and I didn't realize it till after my book was out, that being a writer and being an author are actually two different things. As a writer, (laughs) my only job is to tell good stories. As an author, my job is to sell stories. So in this age that we're living in, being an author is, you know, you're a bit of a public figure. I write for teens. So teens are on social media. Teens are on TikTok. They are on Instagram. They want to feel like they can access you and talk to you and tell you personally that they loved your book, which can be a good or bad thing. (laughs) And I didn't know any of that. I just thought, oh, I'll write some books and maybe sign some and it'll be great. And I would say for people, not just authors, but For any creators, visual artists, musicians, actors, what I would say is to understand and appreciate that those are different things when you're paying attention and and doing the art versus promoting the art and doing the, the admin behind it. Those are two different jobs. And the reality is you can't do both things every day. It's okay to have certain days where you don't check your email because you're in the art. And it's okay to take entire days where you're not writing or you're not doing the art because you are making TikToks in my case or promoting or answering emails or doing the other things that are now a part of your work. Both are valid. You shouldn't feel like a failure if you're not doing both every single day in and out because they are basically two different jobs. It's about finding the balance. And then there are some days too, like last week, where I just said, you know what, I'm going to go on a little day trip and go to a, a small town nearby and just get away and unplug and refill my creative well. That is actually work too. That is just as valid and as important as the other things I'm doing. Do you have any tips for being creative on a deadline? Or do you like a deadline? And normally I like deadlines. My deadline for my second <laughs> book was really fast, like even by industry standards. I think most books come out a year apart. Mine have come out 10 months apart, oh, which is really gosh, really quick. <laughs> yeah. And actually, it was cool because I did learn my my limits and I don't want to do it again, but that's pretty cool that like I published a book and 10 months later I wrote and I'm now publishing a second book. And my books, you've seen them. They're not small. <laughs> like no. These are 500-page books. That's really cool to me that I was able to do that. And also, you know, creativity on a deadline, A, being honest about what your deadlines need to be. I'm kind of guilty of being a yes person. I don't want to let anyone down. So I'll say, yeah, I can do it. And I will break myself in half to do it. I don't recommend that strategy. It is not sustainable. Be real like with your team and with the people you're working with about what you can actually do. And don't be afraid to take those days, like I said, where maybe you aren't writing, but you're taking a walk. You're spending time with your family. You're reading a good book, watching a movie, because all of those things do feed your creativity. I mean, those are not wasted days. So this is a, a bit of a peculiar question, but one that I'm curious about. 
Do you have control over the covers and the look and feel? How does that part of the creative process work for you? So a big thing that I'm very lucky to have learned, I know some authors struggle with this, is the process of letting go once you become an author. I knew and I know that as soon as Beasts of Prey was published and out in the world, it was mine, but it wasn't anymore. Ah. People are going to pick up this book and receive it in any number of ways based on their experience. There is an author who I really adore, a children's author named Rick Riordan. He wrote the Percy Jackson books that are much beloved. I remember on Twitter one day, a reader asked if one of the characters in his book was gay. And he essentially said that the relationship that a reader has with a book is none of the author's business. And that has always stayed with me. He didn't say it like that. That's how I would say it. But he said it in a much more tactful way. But it's really stayed with me, not just between author and reader and a reader and book, but to speak to, you know, with covers, there's a letting go process. At some point, I have to trust that the designers who work at Penguin, who are incredibly talented, know what they're doing. They do all the studying to know like what covers do well, to know what's going to resonate, what colors are going to look nice. And so I can have all the ideas in my head, but I'm not an illustrator. I'm a writer. That's my lane. So I really tried to let go and, and really put a lot of trust in Penguin when it came to covers. But Penguin was also really lovely. And I had some creative kind of consulting ability there where I got to say, yes, I like this. But I try to respect that everybody has their talent and their strength, including me. And I try to focus on the things that are in my wheelhouse. That sounds like a very healthy attitude to have towards it. I am in awe. <laughs> okay, so... I'm wondering if you have any advice for our listeners if they are curious about the business side of book publishing, of mm-hmm. being an author from agent or marketing or publicity or like the best thing that you have learned from that business side of it. Well, as unsexy as it may be, if you have an interest in being traditionally published, It really is beneficial to try to learn the business of being an author before you dive into it. And when I say the business, thinking about things that nobody really likes to talk about. For example, unless you are married and have a spouse who's able to supply health care, you've got to think through things like health care and insurance and child care and these logistics that maybe a traditional job might give you. I'm fortunate. And I know there are other authors who are fortunate to have spouses who can provide health care. But I also know a lot of authors who are not married, who have to figure that piece out on their own. And that's an expense. And that's a reality that you do have to think about. When you're an author, you're not salaried. So what you have to do is think realistically, what do I need to survive? And is what I'm being offered for my books enough for me to survive and maintain whatever lifestyle I have? And be really honest with yourself about whether the answer to that question is yes or no. It might be yes, it might be no, it might be not yet. Maybe after I sell another book, maybe it will be a yes. Publishing is an old school entertainment industry. And unfortunately, what I've noticed is that a lot of these kind of older traditional industries don't like talking about money. Talk about money. Be very candid about money. You know, well, I would say with your agent, maybe just with your agent. Because there are some authors who, for example, for them, the most important thing is selling their book to an editor of high esteem who they have respect for. For other people, they're like, no, this is how I'm going to pay for my groceries. So for me, money is the most important thing. And don't be shy, especially if you're 
a woman, especially if you're a person of color, because I cannot say it enough times. I see it more and more as I get older. We are taught to be very humble and very gracious and, oh, I don't want to ask for too much. Ask for all the money. Ask for all of it. Take all of it. This is your work. I wrote Beasts to Pray for five years. So whatever my book deal is, divide that by five. That was five years that I was not paid. So don't be apologetic about demanding to be paid adequately for the amount of work that you've put in. And network. Talk to other authors who have done what you want to do. There's an author named George M. Johnson who once said, you are somebody else's blueprint. What you're doing right now, you are creating a blueprint for somebody else. Go find another author who you're like, that's the exact career I want. And if you can, reach out to them. And some of them might answer, some of them might not. But in my experience, most of the time they do answer. And they'll give you advice and they'll tell you what they've learned. And take that in like a sponge and apply that when it's your turn to take a book to editors. I love it. So a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are in their first lives and they want to do something else, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the same industry or an entirely different industry, but they haven't made that leap quite yet. What advice Mm -hmm. would you give someone who's standing on the precipice and who wants to make that leap but just hasn't done it quite yet? I would say the first step is the hardest step. So what helped me was building a routine and treating this second life, this second job, like a real job, something that you do, if not every day, most days. There is an author who I really admire. Her name's Seba Tahir. And when I was writing Beasts to Prayer, I remember reading an interview. She said, protect your writing time fiercely. Even if you dedicate 30 minutes, 20 minutes every single day to the thing that you want to be your full-time career, If you do that 20 minutes every day, long enough, you'll get where you're going. I told you I took the bus at the University of Florida. It was a short bus ride, but I was on my phone sitting on the bus, putting little notes in, like, when I get home tonight, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to put this scene in. Stealing those little moments away. I know there are people who are parents and caretakers, and it's hard to find that time. But whatever minute that maybe you you would watch TV while you're in the car, maybe there's something that you can listen to, like a podcast about your craft. However much time it is, take a little bit of time every day and protect that time fiercely and dedicate that time to advancing what you want to do. Also, tell people, tell people, I'm going to be a full-time chef. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a fashion blogger. I'm going to be an actress. Because when you tell people, you make it real. And you legitimize it. It's not just, I want to be, I will be. Talk affirmatively about it. When people try to encroach upon your time, say, hey, this is my like little hour that I'm writing. And you'll get to a point where the people who love and respect you will understand. That's their time. That's their hour that they're doing this thing that they're serious about. That is a fact and a half. So one of the other things that we like to talk about on this podcast is mistakes. Because Mm -hmm. everyone makes them. But we tend not to focus on sharing them. Instagram tends to be the highlight reel. Yes. But I think that we learn the most from when we hear about mistakes that other people have made. And if nothing else, it makes us feel less alone. So I'm hoping that you can tell me about a mistake that you've made in your career thus far and what you've learned from it. I mean, I alluded to it earlier. I think my mistake when I was writing book two was being a little bit too much of a yes person and saying, yeah, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Instead of being very real about the fact that, you know, I had just published a first book 
And I was certainly pretty tired from that. And instead of being a little bit more upfront about, hey, here's what I can do, I pushed through it. And I did put out a second book and it's published and I'm very proud of that. But the way I felt physically after that was done was pretty horrible because I was staying up and writing 18 hours a day for two weeks straight. Uh. That is no way to treat your body. (laughs) I'm very grateful that I have people who love me, who help me physically like heal and sleep and rest after that period of time was over. But I wish I hadn't done that to myself, you know? There was no need for it. Especially once I talked to my editor and my agent and they were like, Ayana, you didn't have to do that. (laughs) You could have just told us. And then it was kind of like an oh duh moment. But in my head I felt like I can't let everybody down. I have to do this. I have to do it quickly. Yeah, I wish I'd just been a bit gentler with myself. I also feel like when you are especially starting your career, because you're still so young, when you have an opportunity and a chance, you feel like you have to take it and strike while the iron's hot. And you want your Mm -hmm. readers, I would imagine, to have the book that they want. And you're saying yes to so many people that can feel like a tidal wave of pressure that your own personal health or your sleep patterns seem small in comparison, but they're really everything. Yeah. And to your point, like taking care of yourself, filling that creative well back up, having experiences, like that's what gives you the fuel to do what you do. And if you're just depleting, 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 you don't have anything left to give. Yep. I very recently spoke with another writer who grew up He had a lot of farmers in his family, and he talked about how the creative process is like crop rotation. It was (laughs) such a fascinating analogy. I really liked it. But he said, you know, in farming, you might harvest from one field and then let it rest and then go field another area of the same farm and let that recover and grow and water it and let it have a little bit of rest before you go back and try to pull more from it. Otherwise, you ruin the soil. I feel like I'm going to write, don't destroy the soil on something and post it somewhere just as a reminder, like you got to take care of things. I love that though. Yeah. So my last question is also my favorite question, which is if you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice, what would you say? Oh, I have a serious answer and I have a silly answer. (laughs) I would like both, please. The serious answer is stop worrying about what other people think. Be yourself, as cliche as it sounds. Nobody else knows what they're doing. Be yourself and stop worrying about everything. It'll work itself out. My silly answer is stop straightening your hair. You're burning it off. (laughs) Again, like I guess as a Black woman, like we're conditioned about what certain standards of beauty are. And I was literally burning my hair off. For what? No shame to people who do straighten their hair. But for me, I was like, there is no reason for me to do this. Yeah. Well, also, let's be mad at society because that is really the issue here. That's fair. And yes, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure. I have stayed up way too late many nights reading your book. And I'm so excited for the new one. And I'm so excited for the one after that. It was such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for making time. Thank you. That was the New York Times bestselling YA author, Ayana Gray. For more inspiring interviews with women like Ayana, head on over to secondlifepod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. 
If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We always want to know who you're interested in hearing from on the show. So send in your requests to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr, and you've been listening to Second Life.